0: As I had alluded to just in, at the beginning, uh, the urgency of the moment. Uh, over the last couple of days, uh, all these emails came in about Fukushima, you know. I don't know if you're aware what's happening there, but uh, they're having a real hard time uh, containing uh, the radiation, the spillage. And uh, it may be that Japan doesn't have all the resources to actually be able to do it, so our whole world, uh, uh, they're calling for all of us to be involved in helping um, dispose of these uh, rods in a safe way. Uh, You know, throughout the Middle East, all the different wars in all the different places that we're aware of uh, within our own country here. You know, all the disparities that remain, you know. The, the current, uh, and, you know, I have grandkids, very, very young grandkids, and I think, what kind of world are these, my grandchildren, going to inherit? So there's um, great urgency for us to wake up. Uh, One of the things that always stays with me, that the Buddha said, with our our thoughts we make the world. And, you know, listening to that with the ordinary mind is, is you know, you just sort of listen to that and you think, yeah, you know, what we think, you know. But really, it's a profound truth in that at the deepest levels of realization, there's actually the opportunity to see how we're all involved in a projection of what's actually going on. <clears throat> that this mind of which we're only uh, perceiving as a tiny part that's sort of stuck in the, in the, in the form uh, uh, end of the whole arc of existence, uh, is it, it, a, a vast, vast field of awareness that it actually is manifesting the reality that we're physically experiencing. So, the, the merit and the value of training the mind so we have different choices is uh, it's huge. <laughs> and, you know, we, we don't see that because we are existing within a very uh, small framework of perception. So the, uh, uh, the thoughts that we have precede the actions that we take. And so what we are experiencing in our biosphere at this time is, a, is an expression of the workings of our own minds. And being human beings, we're at the end of a whole evolutionary process with all of life that we know exists, at least in this biosphere. But this mind of ours has a capacity to reflect on itself in a way that at least to the degree that we can tell, other life forms may not be able to. There's a way that our minds can understand and synthesize and recognize its own origin. Our minds can recognize what we actually are to a depth that other life forms may not be able to articulate quite that way. So to the degree that we wake up and actually begin to experience directly what we are it has a kinetic effect on the whole uh, the whole world of form you know in the tibetan tradition um, it's very kind of shamanic like and in the shamanic traditions this is so 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 i mean and when we look at it in the ordinary mind with the ordinary mind we can dismiss it but many Beings that have the realization are working right at the nexus of form and non form in an effort to actually help the manifestation towards greater health and balance. And that's always going on. <clears throat> so I wanted to take a little bit of time and just kind of begin to look at how do we get here? <laughs> how do we get into this uh, predicament that we're in? When we are born as babies, Uh, we we are born in a state of utter openness. Because there isn't this huge conceptual framework when we're born, there's just this openness. And this openness also has a sense of unity. I mean, a baby feels itself continuous with everything, and it's open to everything that it's experiencing, and there's this curiosity and interest towards everything that is coming in. I mean, that's the beginning of the embodiment process where awareness itself can kind of know itself through its own physical experience. And it's very rare that as a human being we are born into a situation where the adults around us actually have enough realization to see that in the baby and support it so the baby doesn't have to disconnect from that mm-hmm. so at the very heart of our biggest biggest <clears throat> suffering is the fact that very early on we had to disconnect from that and it happens because the adults are around us and the baby needs to live the life force wants to live and most the adults around the baby are not vibrating, if you will, at the level that this baby is coming in with. So the baby has to make this excruciating effort to connect. And in order to connect, it has to sort of synchronize with the adults around them. And that process of synchronizing begins to take us away from the actual ground that we are, that we are a part, the the, the very essence of what we are. And as we begin to develop, you know, I I mean, through psychology, there's a whole process of symbiosis and so on, but I mean, this is happening at a much uh, deeper level than just the, the psychological, process of, of ego development. So we begin to accumulate experience, you know, the the organism we have, we're born into this physical human form that is extremely vulnerable. When we're born, you know, we basically can't fend, do much for ourselves, so we're completely dependent on our environment. And you know, the body gets cold or gets hungry or you need to have your diaper changed or, you know, all these different physical discomforts. And so, you know, the organism wants to avoid discomfort and wants to go towards the pleasant and that kind of, uh, you know, we, every living being needs and wants to go towards that which is pleasant or comfortable or makes, makes it happy. So as we begin to process experience, little by little, part of the natural development is that we begin to make thoughts, that to have concepts that start developing in the mind. And, oh, when I do that, this happens. And when I don't do, you know. So we begin to build a conceptual framework. And that framework of concepts given the individual experiences we have, what home was like, what school was like, how we were received, how we were not received, how we were rejected, how we were punished, all of that uh, turns into a structure of ideas that we carry and also a structure of self-images. So our personality, actually, is a collection of self-images. You know, I went, for example, uh, during elementary school, very difficult time for me. One of those kids that other kids bully and don't like and so on. So there's there's a, a, an identity that is this little kid in the school, in the schoolyard, you know, uh, feeling hated. So then, you know, there may be another one that, uh, that feels like she can figure stuff out in nature or something like that. But there, these are images. It is not... The, the depth of what we are, but we start collecting these little images, and, I, and then we identify with them. And we ident- it's not that they're not part of our experience. They are. But we, having lost connection with our ground, having lost that kind of openness and that kind of oneness that we had as babies, we then, all we have is these structures that we're identified with. And luckily, what we are is so strong and profound that these structures don't totally cover it up. I mean, through the structure, you get little, little peaks, little glimpses of what it is that we are. And sometimes just a very ordinary experience. You could be washing dishes, you could just be running, you could just be looking at your loved one, and there's this, this uh, coming through of some essential, profound sense of what we are. So when we come to spiritual practice, it's not like we're coming to import something that we don't have. We basically come to practice to train the mind so we can see through the scaffolding of ideas and notions about everything so that we can actually get back. I mean, the whole journey is to come back to the depth of what we are. And our world is in the state that it is because we don't have access to this. Mm. If we had access to this, this would be a totally different world. Now, so far, I've just been talking about what happens to us as individuals. Then, you know, we come into social structures we all have, you know, our ego structure wants to have it our way. We, we want, I mean, it's an insecure structure because it's made up of all these identities from the past, mind you. It's not in the present. So we, the, our, our ego structure, my ego structure, it, it's all nervous. I mean, it's, it's insecure. And to the degree, some, some of us may have had very wonderful ideal situations at home, and so you get a little bit more stable of an ego structure that's not so insecure. But ultimately, all ego structures are insecure because they're not based on something that is solid. They're not based on true nature. They're based on a collection of past experiences, and they're limited in, its, in their view because the present is not the past. In the present, there's infinite possibilities. Anything can happen but we are yet seeing it through the lens of all this collection of experiences that we've had and then the identities that we have uh, glued onto. So, depending on where we're born in a social structure, our preferences get either imposed on others or others' preferences are imposed on us because social structures are just an extension of the ego structure. And, and, not everyone has the same access to the design of social structures. You know, now, generations after generations after generations of inequities. It's the people who have the power that can impose their preferences to be part of the social structure, and that's where we have what's, in sociology, called the, the cleavage lines in society. And the cleavage lines basically describe a group that is, has the privilege of exercising its power, keeping the ones that they, that, that they either don't like or, or want to keep down, uh, keeping them separate and keeping them down. And the reason we keep others down is that their very existence, the ego gets nervous when anything is different from its own position, from its own view. It's just generic. Any ego structure gets nervous when it meets something that doesn't validate its, its view. But if we have the power to impose our views, and if we're totally disconnected from the depth of what we are, that actually gives us the depth of ethics, then, you know, these cleavage lines have come into existence. And it's interesting because it's something about aggregating in large numbers. There's a, There was a, a writer in South Africa, Lawrence Vanderpost, Post, who did a lot of advocating for the Bush people, and he spent a lot of time with Bush people in Africa. And he said he had never in his life met people who were so uniquely themselves and at the same time so connected to the whole of existence, the whole of everything not only even the earth but the stars Um, and he also noted that they never aggregated in groups, I mean there were small bands of hunter-gatherers you know, 10-12 people, the largest group he ever saw was 30 people And he, one of his uh, uh, hypotheses was that when we began to aggregate into large groups of tribes, that the uh, norms that developed within the larger tribes became oppressive because it wasn't equal. You know, there was somebody emerged who had more power, and then the norms that developed did not allow for the true uniqueness of each individual. So he used the term, the tyranny of numbers. And, so, and we are living, you know, many, many generations down that line with what we have uh, uh, within the structures that we're living in. And I just wanted to mention, in, uh, at UC Berkeley, there's a new institute, the Haas Institute for a Fair and Inclusive Society. That's actually its mission is to look at social structures to look at how we can change the way social structures are designed. Who has access? How do we make that change? And it's the first of its kind in the world. And the uh, director of it, uh, John Powell, very well-known civil rights uh, scholar here in the U.S., has written a book that is really brilliant It's a scholarly uh, piece of work, but it really is worth reading for anyone who's interested in understanding how, as a society, we perpetuate oppression. And the name of the book is Racing to Justice. So if any of you are interested, it's something um, worth uh, looking into. Within, uh, I used to uh, be a physician for healthcare for the Homeless in San Francisco for many, many years. And a lot of my uh, patients were migrant workers and day laborers and people who've gone through unbelievable uh, suffering, either persecuted in their country, uh, or you know, on their way, or trying to get here. And so the uh, economic forces that drive people out of their countries that end up over here, um, we ended up doing some research and, and uh, seeing what would happen to them uh, when they got here. And basically, when they were injured, it was kind of the end of their life, because the people at home often didn't believe that, they uh that they were injured they thought maybe they just didn't want to send money anymore and then here they had no place to go so they were you know between a rock and a hard place and i i mean some of the people that i met basically were self-destructing uh, would know would know no place to go and injured and so um we did some research around that to document this predicament and and uh part of my learning at that time t- was to really understand what in anthropology is called structural violence and it's basically an extension of what i'm describing you know we all we live within structures everything <laughs> all around us is that and the the more global economic structure you know has violence involved in it and so do the structures uh, within our society here the, uh, these structures have inherent in them, violence towards certain groups. And it's very, it's, it's, a, it's an understanding that is um, useful for us to realize so that it takes the discussion from individuals and what an individual couldn't do or why that person is persecuted but to actually understand the forces that we are embedded in and we are all suffering from this, no matter what side of the line you're in, even if you end up in a, in a side where you have more safety and more comfort, there is no uh, individual salvation here. We are all together in this predicament that we find ourselves in at this time. The... Um, when uh, when the buddha uh, up, you know reached his enlightenment there's that famous mudra where he touched the earth and that mudra to me means so much because it was you know the, the standard thing we hear is you know that he was calling on the earth to witness the level of you know that he his real, own realization but i also have thought that this, the Buddha was acknowledging his connection with the earth and all that that implies, and an affirmation of our embodied experience. There is a wisdom that comes from being connected to the earth that indigenous people know and that us in urban settings have lost. And at that moment, when the Buddha was basically at the peak of the experience that he had been working on, what he chose to do was to connect with the earth. At a time when uh, uh, I have felt very despairing for a couple of years, I was very... Uh, kind of depressed about the situation with the environment and all that was happening. And I remember, you know, a, a few years ago, finally just making a commitment to the earth that I would tune into her, that I would speak to her, and that I was praying that I could be receptive enough to listen and hear what she had to say. And it's amazing. Because there began a process of all kinds of miraculous things happening. From animals walking on the roof to, I mean, all kinds of things. (laughs) Dreams being woken up at night with teachings, all kinds of things. If we open ourselves, the whole earth wants us to relate, to be in dialogue with her. And if we are informed in that way by the natural world, we are empowered. In a way that we have no idea. Um, so I wanted to uh, mention, you know, Martin Luther King, uh, the Christmas before he was killed in 1967, had given a sermon, sermon on peace and he was uh, uh, speaking about the interconnectedness of reality. And, uh, and he, he said this, the sacredness of all reality hinges on a moral foundation. The sacredness of all reality hinges on a moral foundation. And this moral foundation, in many ways, we're not capable of the depth of morality until we are connected to this ground i mean we can have varying degrees but the true the experience of feeling our own true nature inherently brings about a power and a commitment and a desire and a melting of the heart and yet with strength to serve and to do what's right And to work to support life. So to the degree that our ego structure becomes transparent to this deeper nature, we're then informed and empowered to actually be able to live more ethically. And yet, it's easier (laughs) said than done, because most of us walk around with tremendous wounding. I mean, myself included. And... uh, So our own wounding gets in the way of being able to stay connected to our own true nature. I mean, there's all this wobble just from the grief of our wounding. So we have to do healing. And it's not like you have to wait to feel your true nature until all the healing's done. It's not that. But it is very difficult to, to be able to stay connected to our depth if we don't address our our wounding. And so there are certain elements that are very important for our healing. One is the feeling of safety, feeling like there's a place where we can feel safe. And we are social beings. We need each other. We can't heal in isolation. So feeling like we are safe within the realm of our experience, within the people that we are with, allows the personality to relax so then the depths of what we are can come forth it's also really helpful if we feel like our basic needs are met our needs for connection our needs for food for shelter you know for work a way to engage with the world that has that makes us feel like we're part of the whole and then we need to be, you know. It's it's always been amazing to me why, you know, even as a physician, you know, why the healing cannot happen in isolation. We sort of we need uh, some mirror. But the the process of being received and understood by another, it, it's amazing what it can do. With understanding, understanding makes love possible. When we understand each other. We can actually love and appreciate each other. But the understanding, and before the understanding comes, we have to be interested in the other, or in, our, or in ourselves, or in our own experience. There has to be that interest, that curiosity. Then the understanding, then the love. And uh, in a, I went from internal medicine into osteopathy and a totally different world of uh, understanding of what healing is about. And so um, the amazing, I mean, the whole, I do the biodynamic style, it's all based on uh, working with what we call the self-correcting drive in the body. That the body actually has this strong drive towards healing itself, towards finding its own uh, balance, towards optimizing the normal state And it's the same forces that create an embryo, that create a human being, are the same forces that continue to heal it. So that you can actually perceive the energetic movement uh, in the body that uh, follows pathways. For example, for the development of an embryo, let's say at first, a very early embryo has just the tube what we call the gut tube, and then little outpouchings come out of that gut tube that become a liver, become the kidneys, and so, you know, um, when the body goes into a self-correcting pattern, let's say somebody is being treated, the body will recapitulate that process of going back and, and sort of, say you're treating a liver, it will come back and become a gut tube, and then little by little the energy will come out again and again and again until the full liver is sort of energized, and it heals. So that incredible intelligence that's in the body, that is also in our minds. Our heart-mind has this drive to understand itself, to know what we are. The In, in my own uh, Tibetan tradition, we use the term timeless awareness to describe this the source of everything, timeless awareness, and I'm going to be speaking of that in the afternoon. But this drive of awareness, its job, is through all of these experiences of being in this physical life, through this process to eventually recognize itself, to know itself. So we come in totally dissolved in oneness, we get lost, and we have all these experiences. And at the end, it's to really take all of the experience to bring us back to where we started from. And all healing, my, one of my osteopathic teachers would say, uh, all healing involves a return to the origin. Mm-hmm. And there are laws in reality that repeat, patterns that repeat. And this is one of them. All healing involves a return to the origin. And our healing, our planet's healing, depends on our return to the origin of what we are. So the... um, We're running. (laughs) Time is going to be very fluid today. Um, So this is where the spiritual practice comes in and the training of our minds, so that we can actually begin to see through these structures. And an area of great interest these days is the fact of neuroplasticity. In the old days we thought, well, you know, the brain, we get X number of neurons, and you know, once you get to a certain point in middle life or, you know, certainly by your 60s, you know, the the the, the function starts going down, we start to lose, you know, the cortex of our brain gets smaller, you know, it's sort of all this neuron di- die off. And, So what we're finding now, actually, is that um, how we're using our minds can totally, (laughs) dramatically change the structure of our brain. And there's all kinds of research. Initially, you know, we would compare, like, people who were non-meditators to meditators. They have some studies of, you know, Tibetan monks that were meditating for many, many years and very different function in their brain, uh, greater cortex and so on. Now, the latest study that I saw that came out has found, you know, they took people at the beginning of a eight-week course where they meditated 30 minutes a day for eight weeks. This is it. Two months, 30 minutes a day. And with that input, the cortex that had to do with memory, with executive function, with autoregulation, It all increased in eight weeks. So there's somebody from Harvard who, uh, they haven't published a study, but we're we're looking at um, Tibetan uh, meditation, and, you know, there you have mantra repetition, you have guru yoga, where you're meditating with your teacher, or you have visualizations, or, or looking at certain images, and they were able to correlate what each of those practices, what part of the... You know, a big thing these days is the prefrontal cortex, which is right here, uh, because there are areas of that cortex that regulate our stress um, alarm, the amygdala, and what can kind of keep us in a state of constant anxiety. And so the there the are parts of the, of the uh, frontal lobes that actually are involved in calming or regulating and the hippocampus which is another structure when we're if we have a lot of stress as children, the amygdala gets big and the hippocampus actually gets small. And what they're finding with with meditation is actually you can make the hippocampus bigger, you can calm down the amygdala and you can be way more um, capable of having less stress in your life, of making better decisions about how you're living, of relating to others, of being able to be more empathic. And if you don't know the work of Rick Hansen, he's very connected to Spirit Rock, uh, certainly I would recommend looking at that. But I just want to tell you that to support the value of practice, there's no replacing practice. There's nothing that does what uh, meditation practice can give us. So um, one, one last thing and then we'll take a break that what the other thing they found that is, is probably the most important thing that I forgot is what Rick Hansen's huge contribution is the fact that the brain, part of our um, mechanism uh, in response to stress, is to remember that which was threatening, because you don't want to miss it next time. And then, you know, you may not survive. So the brain has evolved a tendency to hang on to negative experience. So he says, you know, the brain has Velcro for the negative and Teflon for the positive. I don't know if you, if you are aware, but, you know, you, you may have a pleasant experience. And, you know, if you're lucky, you're holding it for like five seconds and then it's gone. (laughs) We don't sit there and relish it and notice, oh, this, you know, and really open to it and entertain it. If we can hold it for at least 30 seconds, it has a chance to go into long-term memory. Most of it doesn't. Negative experience goes straight into long-term memory. (laughs) Even if it's two seconds. So we are dealing with a very lopsided brain here. So, uh, and and it's a handicap. (laughs) And depending on our history, you know, this lopsidedness can be quite intense. Mm -hmm. So, again, uh, this is more encouragement. and, And because it is workable, I mean, it involves repetition and going, doing things over and over and over to establish new pathways. But it is possible. And it is possible for our brain to actually develop more capacity so we can be doing this till the end of our days and so a uh, very very different way to uh, think about our prospects and our, what we're able to do with our minds and with our practice so um, we'll take a break and then we'll, we'll try an exercise to see how some of this might work okay, thank you Let me, th- let me take this. Do we have everybody here now? Um, Yeah, that'd be great just to, because for this part, uh, everyone should be here.